uh, yeah, I'm on. That's good. So those, if you've been, those of you who've been around uh, this summer, will note that the normal people here were not here. Well, John was here last week, but mostly there's been different people. Um, and I hope you've been appreciating having different people up here, and I hope you've been appreciating what they've been saying. Um, and so, for today and for the last few weeks, um, if you've had any feedback experiences of what you've been up to, how God's changed you over the last few weeks, please feed them back to those standing here. We really are encouraged when um, what we say up here, what we feel God's um, asking us to say to you, is goes out and changes you. We're not here for your entertainment. I know some people like to listen to sermons just for entertainment factor, but trust me, there's more fun things to do on a Sunday morning um, for entertainment factor. This is the idea, is that you go out that door today and for the rest of the week and the weeks to come, different change, that you do something different. Okay. Right. Yes, an illustration. So, have you, uh, oh, thanks, Bill, been to a place or grown up somewhere, regularly visited somewhere, that's actually really amazing, but you're there so often and so frequently that you kind of just take it for granted? And it's only when somebody else comes in who's not normally there that goes, Wow, this is an amazing place. This uh, picture is a picture of my garden, well, my parents' garden when I was growing up, out of their bedroom window. Massive big garden, huge, great, two lawns and a bit of a wood thing at the bottom. But when I was growing up, I was like, that's just normal for me. And it was only when people came around and went, ah, your, your garden's been, it's brilliant. It's, you've got this massive great house you live in um, and it's big garden. And I went, well, it's just home. And you just take it for granted. And there are some passages in the Bible that are exactly like that. We take the grants, but so familiar with them, we just, we just get used to them. We don't, we don't sort of appreciate the full depth of them. And there's a number of reasons to why that is the case. Two of them are, the first is that the kind of verses that you have in your children's Bibles, they've either you've read to your children, or to your grandchildren, or you've had to read to yourself when you were young. And you read them in that, the kiddies version of the Bible, and then, but you don't actually go back, and as adults necessarily, and dig deeper. Because you think, I know that story, I know how it all works, it's, you know, it's fairly simple. But actually we should as adults, and some of the stuff we're going to, the verse we're going to look at this morning are in that category, we need to look at that. <laughs> and the second reason, another reason why sometimes we miss them, and we sort of don't quite get them, is they're short. So earlier this year we've been going through um, Colossians. Now Paul's writing is dense. Trying to read through that and digest it all is like eating wholemeal bread. You can feel the nourishment as you have to chew it. You kind of, you know, you know it's, it's just, as you chew it through, you can feel there's nourishment there. But there are some verses in the Bible that are like those A to Z vitamin pills that have got packed full of goodness, but you just swallowed them and take a glass of water and it's just gone. But it's packed full of stuff. And there are verses in the Bible are like that as well. Um, yes. Right. So the cool verse we're going to be looking at this morning it's Genesis 1-1. Um, but I'll need to go back up in a minute, Phil, as well. Genesis 1-1. Um, and the, the words are not even the whole verse. The bits we're going to be looking at is the ones on the title of the slide, in the beginning God. In the Hebrew, it's only two words. These words and what they mean and what they unpack is massively important. It completely under, underpins the entire gospel. If you don't get what these words mean... And don't understand the significance of them. All of this lot, I'm pointing to the communion table for people on audio recording, completely doesn't work. The cross is meaningless, Jesus is meaningless, because you've not understood the gravity and the significance of what the Bible is, Bible is staying right from the beginning. And what I want you to, um, to get from this is that, by the time we've, we've got to the end of this talk, is that 
you understand God differently by the time we get to the end of this piece. And that you uh, have a, some ideas as how you might talk to people about Jesus slightly differently. Now, what I talk about this morning, as in every time people talk from this platform, sometimes it uncovers things, it's, it picks away things that we find uncomfortable. The word is, God's word is described as a, as a sharp double-edged sword, which sort of you know, cuts through the bits of, of flesh and marrow, or whatever it's described. A modern translation of that might be described as a scalpel. Sometimes God needs to do surgery with us through his word. And that isn't, although it's to wound us because he cuts us, it's actually to heal something. It's actually to do to business with us and to do something with us. And frequently, if not most of the time, we should expect God's word to do that to us. So I'm just giving you that warning now. The prayer team will be in the back corner where our, over back in that corner. Um, you may want to pray with them. You may want to come and find, um, pray with someone you've come today. You may want to catch up afterwards and do that. But we're going to get to that end state in four steps. The first thing we're going to look unpack this verse. The second thing we're going to do is look across Scripture to verses that expand on what what this verse this verse means in examples. Then we're going to look at what it means to Jesus. Because if we get this verse wrong initially, then Jesus, what we understand about Jesus, doesn't work at all. And lastly, um, I want us to think about how this affects the relationship to other people and how we interact with them and how we talk to them. So let's go back to the beginning. To make our first steps, we need to understand what these words mean. If at the beginning of everything, the only thing exists is God, that makes him very powerful, what's going to come next? We know because we've got the text, we've got the Bible, we can open up and read it. But is it certain at the beginning that God is going to create a universe and going to do all the things he's going to do? And for the things that come next, that's you and me and the rest of the universe, do we get to challenge or veto or red card or overrule what's going to come next? You might think it's a bit strange thing to say, but that actually is important. You'll, you'll see what's going to happen. There are two things that come out from very early in um, Genesis, the first chapter and a half, that critically set the stage for what happens through the rest of the Bible and set the foundations for the narrative of the whole Bible, including um, Jesus and his death and and resurrection, which is why we've got the communion uh, uh, food here. Before we get there, I'll look at a couple of images. If you can fit the lights, Phil. There we go, that's better. Now... In this image and the one coming afterward, there is an object that is very familiar to all of us. Ignore the stripy lines, they're just an artifact from how the picture's put together. There's an object that's very familiar to all of us. The first picture, got it? Second picture. First picture? Second picture. Any idea what the object is? It is. Thank you, William. It's planet Earth. For those of you who didn't spot it, it's there. Little, little pale blue dot. This image was taken in 1990 on one of the uh, Voyager 
space probes, I can't remember if one or two, launched in 1977 by NASA to go and explore the outer solar system. And they realized on its way out of the solar system, or on its journey, that actually the, the uh, camera will be looking back at Earth. So they thought, I know, we'll try and take a picture and see what we can see. And that's what they got. An image with not very much in it, and basically the Earth shows up as one single pixel of pale blue. Now, the other picture, by the way, was taken... This is taken mid-noughties by the Cassini probe. Again, same thing. They realized the camera is going pointing back towards Earth, and so they took a picture of it. But this is the one that I want to focus on. This, for me, is a significant image because it shows, gives me perspective and focus in life. That everything we've ever known about the entire world in existence is focused on that dark, tiny, pale blue pixel. Now, I don't have time to go into that right now. Um, although John said there weren't going to be extra portions for the stuff we're doing over the summer, there are. You extra treat. Um, so, in the extra portion stuff that we'll be sending out shortly, or the Terra will send out shortly earlier this week, there's a meditation I want you to have a look at, a little read, and then think about based upon that particular picture. But those who've been observant will notice it's the uh, first week in September, so therefore there's no house groups, so you have to do it in your own time, lucky you, because of course it's heartbeat this week. Um, now, I know many of you go, oh, prayer meeting, do I have to go to that? It's good for you. A lot of people thought, coming to Tuesday evening, oh, it's Tuesdays by the way, Move, date shifted, Tuesdays, yes, eight o'clock-ish, for half past nine-ish, yeah. You think, oh, come on, uh, prayer meeting, I don't want to go, it's good for you. You'll come here, you'll feel a bit bedraggled, and you think, have a cup of tea. By the time you go out, the Spirit will have surged through. You'll have experienced community with the Spirit, and by the time you leave out of there, your soul will be reinvigorated, and you'll be refreshed for the week ahead. Sound good? Yeah, good. And if that doesn't sort of um, sustain you, that doesn't inspire you, Barry normally brings biscuits, or whatever works for you. Um, oh, yeah, now, as I mentioned... As I said, this, the, the um, background notes will be through your uh, house group leaders. If you're not in a house group, get plugged in one. If you find house group a bit difficult, you can be an associate. You can sort of plug on the side of a house group, get all the content, and you can sort of do stuff in your own time, maybe with a friend or another friend. Back to the Bible. The first thing we see, thanks Phil, is that God is very powerful, and he has authority over what he's made. A couple of times in the Bible, the, the, the writer uses the analogy of the, the God being a potter with a, making a clay pot. And he says that our creation is light and he gives people are like that clay pot. They just get formed into whatever the potter wants. And if they, it doesn't quite work out right, it's scrapped and started again. And sometimes we think we have more sort of authority and power we do. But that's, it's a bit like this clay pot analogy. That you're just something in the hands of someone something else. The second thing I want to pick out is that, that's the first one, sorry, second one, is that in uh, Genesis 2, God issues a command to Adam. He says, don't eat from that tree. And what God is doing here is he's saying, I, not only do I have authority over the stuff that I've made, I have authority over the commands that I give you. And we learn from this first chapter and a half that God is declared to have authority over what is, what he's made, and what ought the ease and the ought. The oughts are basically, these are things you should do morally from terms of an ethical perspective, or things that you shouldn't do in the context of that first one. Now, so we learned in the first chapter and a half of the Bible that God has authority over what is and what ought. Across both of these, it's important to note that we may not like something that's God's done or God asks us to do. It could be something about the world that we've 
uh, we've, we've got, we've experienced, or something that God's asked us to do. For example, it could be the fact that we are, or either ourselves or someone we love, is born with a certain other medical condition or something that means that we spend lots of time in hospital, either at the beginning of their life or towards the end of their life. And perhaps there are things that God's asked us to do, some of God's laws that you really struggle with and you wish that weren't there. Now, more broadly, given our human beings and the variation across human beings, on our limited nature, do we expect that we're going to agree with everything God does and God asks us to do? I don't think we, I don't think we should expect that. It's also worth noting, of course, that although God has authority over the things he's done, and we'll see some examples where God has authority over his, his creation, God does give us some independence. So it's a bit like a, a game of cards where the dealer gives you a set of cards and you then have your, your skill or whatever in the game is to then play how you place those cards. Sometimes the hand that God gives us in life, we go, oh, that's not fair. We kind of go, oh, I'd like to have their hand because it's better. And God's going, no, no, that's the hand I've given you. Your responsibility is to play it in the best way you can. It's understanding that distinction. And that's really, really difficult. Now, if this description of God is really true, that he has that authority over what is and what ought. And he's that powerful because he was there before all things and we are just a consequence of his will. Us wanting to have different choices and wanting to veto those things isn't going to make them true. See, normally we might want to say, well, actually, I appeal to some higher authority. I'm going to appeal, take it to appeal court or the Supreme Court or somewhere else. <laughs> what we're saying in the Bible is there is no other. There is no one who you can go to that have any point, place we can point to to say, actually, um, there's and then someone else I'd like to go and, you know, a second opinion I'd like to go. It's like, no, no. God is that powerful. He gets to make, make that call. Whether those are disagreements about what he's done or what he's asked us to do or not do. It's worth pausing here and asking look at the consequences of this. Are disagreements with God over his choices about what is and what ought good reasons for rejecting him and living our lives as if he doesn't exist? There are really, there are some who really struggle with what he's done and what he's asked them to do. And as a consequence of that, almost just kind out of their lives. It's a, a kind of strange thing to do. Here's an analogy. Imagine that you didn't really know your biological parents. You, for whatever reason, you, your experience with them, for whatever reason, wasn't good. And you grew up maybe with an adopted parent or your grandparents or somebody else. Just because you in your mind don't like what your parent, biological parents have done doesn't stop them existing. They still exist. You might be separated from them, but they're still there. They have to be there, otherwise you wouldn't exist. So taking the extra leap from, I don't like what you've done, so I just want to ignore you, doesn't quite work. Now, it's, it's worth noting at this point that this idea of having an all-powerful God isn't actually unique to, Christ, unique to Christianity. Other faiths, other Abrahamic faiths, and other um, faith communities have that similar thing. Um, but that's a rabbit hole we don't have time to go into. But it's just it's worth noting that, that, is, that is, that's a starting point that, that is actually much broader than you might think. Oh, it's worth here actually making a comment about sovereignty. 
Some people look at what I've just described and think that means that God is in control. He's in control over everything and therefore, you know, we, we don't have any free will or something. It's like, no, no, that's not true. What does it mean to be a sovereign? Well, we, t- some of those, uh, no, I was going to say, people are old enough to remember gold sovereigns? I don't think so. Um, although they were in a Bond film, I can't remember which one it was. But anyway, oh, we talk about gold sovereigns. What a sovereign. Well, it's another synonym for a king or a queen, isn't it? Okay, so what does that mean? Well, sovereignty is about authority and power over consequences. So, when God says, follow this instruction, do this or don't do this, he's giving you a choice. Where his authority and sovereignty comes in is about the consequences of that action. So when you've got a legal system, a, a, a sovereign or a king that is, has that power in, has the authority, what it means saying is I'm going to give you some choices, the laws of the land. But if you break, break them, or if you obey them, there are consequences. And I have authority and will over those consequences. I'm still giving you a choice. But the consequences of that are, that is my power and authority. And that's sort of where, that's what we, the, the picture that God's trying to, to um, to, to paint you with regards to that picture. Okay, so let's broaden out and, there we go, explore some people in the Bible who struggled with this. First is Jonah. All right, we know the story. God gave him a command for something he didn't want to do. So, there we go. And what was Jonah's response? He ran away. So God told him to speak to the Nevites and preach to them and he went, no. Now, in human terms, we can do this. We can run away. We can cut people out of our lives and just have nothing to do with them. And he tried to treat God as if he was another human being. That, you can't do that with God. As Jonas found out. And in fact, um, with Jonas' case, God caught up with him in fairly short order. But as it says in Revelation, God will catch up with all of us eventually. Interestingly, in Jonas' case, God uses the power over the three W's, the wind, the waves, and the whale, to demonstrate that he had power over the thing he'd asked him to do. And Jesus does the same thing. Remember the story. Again, it's probably a kid's story. You know about it. Jesus is in one of the houses, and the little Pharisees are around, and he's teaching them. A massive crowd of people. And there's some, some friends of uh, there's a man who comes. Well, he doesn't. He's brought on a mat. And his friends bring him on the mat, and he wants to be healed. And they went, how on earth are we going to get into this thing? What do they do? They go to the top of the house, take the roof off, and they lower him down on ropes on the mat. We know the story. We did that in Sunday school. What does Jesus say to the man? He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. <gasps> Shock for horror from the people around and then says to demonstrate that I have the authority to deal with an issue of ought to forgive his sins he then says to the man get up pick up your mat and walk he uses an example of power over the stuff in our lives demonstrate his power over the oughts just like he did with Jonah second person I want to look at is Job now this the uh, story of Job is the bible's Exposition, a study on suffering. Here, Job suffers some horrendous situations. In a short space of time, he loses children, his property, um, and his health. His wife survives, but isn't much help, and neither is his friends. And he complains to God. What does he say? He, he says, well, that's been good. What, what have you know, done? And basically, his cry to God is, It's not fair! Anyone sound familiar? How does God respond? After listening to Job's complaint, more on that in a minute, how does he respond? He says to Job, Who is this that darkens my counsel? 
and speaks words without knowledge. Brace yourself like a man, and I shall question you, and you shall answer me. He continues for another three chapters. I'm not going to read them all out. Um, as paraphrased by own Dave Watkins, that God's response to Job is, all right then, Job, you go away and build yourself a universe. When you've done that, come back, and we'll have a little chat about your current predicament. At which point Job goes, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I might just overreach myself. Just a wee bit. And he backtracks. Now, that seems really harsh because it's like, well, God should have answered him and given him a proper answer. And it's just, uh... But you misunderstand the perspective and, the, and the, what, what God has said. You see, we, we're quite used to the ideas we'll see later of being able to go into God's presence and have that conversation with him. But you see, remember the, 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 the picture that we saw earlier? You know, if it is that sort of background of, of your backdrop in your mind. Think how big the universe is and just the heavens and tiny earth. God has no obligation to talk to Job. He engages with Job, even though Job kind of messes it up and gets it wrong and doesn't quite understand. He engages with Job out of pure grace. And he sort of accommodates him. And Job goes, oh. And the starting point for Job, the thing that God rewards Job for and gives him blessings at the end and is the basis for that starting point in relationship is where Job realises that God is all-powerful in authority and he is not. That is the basis of that starting point. Does it make that any easier? When we're going through those really horrendous, painful situations... Does that help? No, but it's that starting point. It's realising that God has that authority and power, doesn't have to engage with us, doesn't have to do anything because he's not obliged and you know, signed up to and signed anything that says he had to. And we just have that privilege of starting that engagement and understanding that perspective. It's the starting point. And it's, but it's crucially, crucially, crucially important You see, without there being a God who has that absolute sovereignty, there can be no such thing as that relationship that is the basis of which is is set by him, and there can be no basis for sin. See, if it doesn't really matter who God is, and if it's all fairly easy, then sin doesn't really become meaningful. And if sin doesn't become meaningful, the cross doesn't become meaningful, and this communion experience, what Jesus does, doesn't make any sense. Now, this might seem overstated, but that concept, that starting point that we start to hint at within those first few words in Genesis is crucially different between a sort of the Christian context, or the wider religious context, actually, and our modern society. In our society today, we no longer have the concept anymore of legitimate, absolute authority. I'll say that again. We no longer have the concept of legitimate, absolute authority over us. It's gone. We either have legitimate authority that is managed and packaged. So, for example, we um, have politicians and other people who are, have certain power over certain things for a certain period of time. So we have um, two different in our parliament. We have you know, the, the lower house and the upper house and the supreme court. There's various different powers and checks and balances over one another. And they have that power for a certain period of time. And they consider those legitimate. Um, or even the constitutional monarchy. So it's interesting. We were singing earlier um, about um, this next one. Uh, there we go. Jesus, there we go. Um, Jesus is the king. 
And the reason I included that one is because we, we have to remember that the kind of king they're talking about in biblical times, as we'll see, has that uh, absolute authority. Whereas now, you know, as a consequence of Magna Carta and the glorious revolution of the else, it's a constitutional monarchy. She have, you know, he or she has certain powers and they can, you know, they don't have absolute power over us. So there's this concept that we've, um, we've lost in that sense. And we have to work out how do we, if we, there's no equivalent in our modern society, how do we introduce this biblical concept of which there's no pattern, there's no comparison in our society? The alternative in, that we have in our modern society is illegitimate authority. So we think of it's been in the news this week and the last couple of weeks is dictatorships, whether it be sort of King Jump, King Jong Un or somewhere else. We consider those sort of illegitimate. We consider those, well, they are proper because it's not done on some sort of democratic basis. We consider illegitimate. But the Bible is saying, actually, no, no, that kind of power and authority, when you've, you've made the universe, you get that kind of power and authority. And that just doesn't compute in a modern society at all. Like, we've taken aspects of humanity. As it says, that was a famous phrase, it says, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've taken that principle applied to humanity and, and projected it onto God. Maybe there's, this is the sort of downside of Jesus coming in human form. The good sign is it means that we can uh, understand, you know, we can say he, he, he experiences the same things we experience. But the danger is, is that actually we apply onto Jesus and God more broadly things that don't apply to him. That apply to us as fallen, messed up human beings, but don't apply to, to God. And we actually, and because of this Jesus coming in human form, there's a temptation we might, might do that. Let's look at this from another direction. Um, If we're asked, which we are, to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, what does that mean, Lord, mean today? Does that mean he's in our upper house? No. When do we, what do we tell him to use that to him? Does that mean if we we make him the Lord of our lives and make him, you know, first in our lives or something, does he have that power in our lives because we've given it to him? Like a politician, or some other you know, pers- person like that. I, he wouldn't have that authority otherwise. Or did he always sort of have that authority? But we just didn't recognize it. When Jesus um, was here on earth, there were some who tried to make him king on their own terms. But he doesn't let them. At the end of John's account in the feeding of the 5,000, just after that point, they tried to make him king on their own terms and he just doesn't let them. But it's worth also looking at uh, what Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate accuses him, are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus say? It's what you said. It is, as you say. So you are a king then. But what's Jesus' comment, his response? My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my people, my followers would have risen up and tried to, to take power by force. Remember the picture that I... Shows you at the beginning, my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. Pilate just did not compute. John tries to write it in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word is with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made that have been made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, etc. Just Pilate did not compute. And it's only when there is that supreme leader who has the authority that sin becomes meaningful and the cross is necessary. Now, this may seem a bit harsh, 
But it's on this context that God's love means something. In the first chapter or so of the Bible, it's not clear that God has to be loving. Sure, he creates a world and gives some commands. But there's no indication at that point that he has to be loving when those rules are breached. He could have just followed clearly through the consequence he mentioned. There's no obligation from at that time to be benevolent. Yes, there's an example where he covers their sin. Remember, Adam and Eve sin. They notice they're naked. First time that we then get animal sacrifice mentioned. Animals would die somehow. And he covers their sin, covers their nakedness, their shame with animal skins. But there's no reason as to why we should expect that to continue necessarily. We know it does. But there's nothing that God signed up to and says it will continue. This benevolence of God, I think, this benevolence of engaging with humanity and accommodating for our weaknesses, is, I think, the, the main reason we should thank him for what he is. When he's that powerful and that authoritative, there's no um, reason as to why we should, uh, we should think that he should be like that. But he, he chooses to be. And it's the invitation that comes on the back of this grace that he has poured out for us that is the amazing thing that we should we want to engage with and respond to when he's got this plan to have this sort of vision for his world and his kingdom that we get to participate in. There's an there's a example in the Bible that illustrates this quite well. So, just because God expresses his favor sometimes doesn't mean to see that we should take it for granted and demand it next time around. So, the example I'm going to quote for you is um, the example of Esther. Now, some of us will again know the story. It's coming to it in, in Sunday school. So, Kingdom of Israel, they get this, this land, and they get this part of what's now sort of modern, modern day Israel, not quite the same. And they mess it up massively. They go completely off the rails, and as a consequence, God punishes them and allows various other um, empires and nations to conquer their land. And at one time, it's the Persian Empire that has taken over this part of um, uh, the kingdom. And so the Jews have been scattered all over the place as part of that um, larger, bigger kingdom. And partway through this, this period, the king at the time uh, has a falling out with his current queen and decides, I don't want this queen anymore, get rid of her. She doesn't get killed, you just don't want to see her anymore. I want a new queen. Okay, so they basically have the um, have a competition, effectively, um, to decide who the new queen is. It's basically Persia's next top model, basically. And um, there was a competition. And Esther, this young girl, wins the competition. And as Constance winning the competition, she um, gets to be queen. Hooray, nice work if you can get it. Now, so far so good. However, sometime later, her uncle, also Jewish, um, discovers that one of the people in the king's court has is plotting to kill off all the Jews. So that's Esther and her uncle and all the other Jews. Bit of a problem. So Esther's uncle says to Esther, well, you're queen. Can you have a word with the king and just, you know, try and sort this situation out? But there's a problem. The problem is, even though she's the queen, she can't just go and, to go and see the king. She has to be invited. And if she just, the way the rules work, if you just went to see the king uninvited, you were punished. What was the punishment? Death. So if she goes and sees the, sees the king to go, can you sort this problem out? She might be killed. Mm, that's not so good. However, there was an exception. The exception was that the king had a sort of get-out clause. He could, if he chose to, Extend his scepter to the person that walked into his court, walked into his, his court area, and the scepter's about to stick yay long, covered in gold and bling. The queen's got one, it's in the 
Tower of London, you can go into it. You can extend his scepter to the person coming in. They would touch the end of it, and that meant that they weren't going to be killed, and they were accepted into his, into the court. However, you've got no guarantee that he's going to do that. And it has been a month, 30 days, since he's last been invited, which probably, which in her mind basically means, has he forgotten about me? If I turn up, will he just go out off of the head or something? So she fasts and prays about it and gets all the people together and fasts and prays about it. And her decision is, I'm going to go and see the king. Even if it costs me my life, I'm going to see the king. So she rocks up to see the king. And what does the king do? Ah, oh, hi, Esther, coming in. He extends his staff and takes it. Complete grace. She had no obligation to be there. She had no, uh, no um, um, uh, precedent to be there. She has no reason as to why she would be allowed in there. But his grace of the king allows her to come in. And he welcomes her in and they have a conversation. And that kicks off a sequence of events that means that the story has a happy ending, except for the person in her court that, his court that was trying to organize this thing. Now, it's a slightly flawed example because, of course, it, this, there was a human king, but it kind of gives you an idea that, as we were seeing earlier about wearing the royal robes, we sometimes get to um, think, oh, yeah, we can sort of go into God's court and do what he wants, you know, and be part of God's kingdom. It's all, you know, because he's nice and, and lets us in. But you have to remember that that's an invitation. You're not there because of, something you've done or because you somehow it's just it, everyone's can sort of you know can come in that sense it's part of the invitation and we need, need to remember that and also it's worth remembering that yes you can come into the court and wear the royal robes but there's a throne in that and the throne carries authority and stature and you don't get to sit on on the on that chair and it's not because you're not allowed to the point that god is trying to make with job is it's not so much you're not allowed to do those things and have that authority you can't you cannot go away and make a universe. You cannot do those things. So to try and aspire to means that you're sort of going beyond your brief. You're going trying to achieve things you're not going to. There's are things that you're not going to understand because you are constrained on that, as we now understand, that little pale blue dot. And that is it's a real hard challenge. Now, the challenge is here that God is described as love. His love is described as vast. But God gets to describe how that love is expressed and shown to us. If we try to tell God what that should mean, then we're trying to be God. See with Job's example. God's love may be vast and very generous, but it's not for us to decide the terms and conditions that come with that amazing gift. It's a bit like... Many, most of us use sort of some sort of free email service or sort of internet connectivity or something, and it comes with a big long list of terms and conditions that you scroll through and never read properly and click at the bottom. It's a free gift, but those terms and conditions apply. It's a bit like that with God. It's his terms and conditions. God basically says, here is this amazing gift, but it comes with strings attached, and they're my terms and conditions, says God, and it's my way or the highway to somewhere. Now, given that context... Have we, within the church community, oversold God's love? Is that possible? God has, has in one form or another, recorded as intervening in situations. But Jesus himself recognized there are times when God doesn't always heal. In the Gospels, it doesn't seem to undermine the point of the interventions, i.e., the fact you've got some miracles is designed to point to God's sovereignty, his, his, his authority, the fact that he's got, you know, the, who he is. But the fact that he doesn't heal sometimes, the gospel writers don't, that's the only problem to them to, to actually, put, put, you know, for pointing out who he is. 
And if you think about it, that sort of makes sense. Because if God just goes and heals some people, it demonstrates that he has that authority. He's, you know, he's looking, actually, maybe he's God. Right. If he's God, then he gets to choose who he heals or not. It's not for us to go, well, actually, you know, that's, that's not very loving. I'm not very, you know, I'm not really interested in you. I'm not, you know, that's, that's, you know. And it's like, if he's that powerful, we not the ones to sort of, to, to, um, to really sort of cast judgment on that. Sometimes we look at that situation and think, oh, God's evil because he doesn't sort of bless everyone. Because, of course, if we had that much power, we would sort of bless everyone and make it all nice, wouldn't we? But remember that Job, the conversation between Job and God? Job was crying out and saying, it's not fair. But what does God respond with? Go away and build yourself a universe. He's just reminding him, you can't actually do that. And we sort of need to remember that in our, our mind. If he's that powerful, then maybe the way that he understands that love isn't the same way that we would do. Another way to think about it. If love, God's love is so great and accepts me as I am, and everyone's welcome, then I can carry my life pretty much as I was before. Because God's loving me means he's endorsing everything I'm doing because I'm defined what I do. Aren't I? Maybe not. Maybe that doesn't work. Maybe the invitation... It means it's my identity is not necessarily what I want. It's how he's defined that to be. Because it's his terms and conditions, not mine. Sometimes, particularly in children's work, and we sung it earlier. Um, actually, no, we didn't sing it earlier. It's a song we were going to sing earlier, but we didn't have to cut it. Um, we talk about Jesus as our best friend. What does that mean? In one sense, that kind of works. Because our best friend wants what's best for us. And continue to, to encourage us. And continue to... Uh, I wouldn't want us to continue the things that are bad for us. But sometimes we can talk around our friends and we can make excuses with them. And, and if we had a best friend that was harsh and really kept nagging us about something we should do that we shouldn't do or vice versa, we might not stay our best friends for very long. But that's what God's offering. When he's that powerful, he's that holy, and gets to set the terms and conditions. Which leads to another question. I'm behind on my clicky. There we go. Is the gospel good news? Well, it is if you want to be part of God's kingdom, accept it into his community, and take accepting those terms and conditions. But what if you don't? Remember the story about the rich young ruler? What does he say to Jesus? He says this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you know the story. He's actually set a trap for himself without realising it. And before getting to Jesus, before getting to the answer, comments. And his comment is that, um, is that, well, no one's good except God alone. Implying that the man was suggesting that he believed Jesus was God. And therefore was expecting the man was prepared to do whatever Jesus told him to. So if God gives you command, you should do it. Remember the situation Jonah found himself in. Because he's got that authority. But the man doesn't do what Jesus asked him to do. He goes away sad. For many, most of people today, the gospel, which is a sort of synonym for God um, communicating something, demonstrating something, isn't good news, I want you to think about. Because its fundamental starting point is there is someone who is the centre of things and who gets to set how the world should be 
And it's not you. And it's not anyone that you can influence or get round you, wind round your little finger. And there are going to be things that that authority is going to set and do that you're not going to like. And anything that follows from this, the law, the sin, the cross, the resurrection, doesn't change that fundamental starting point. No matter how great this is, it doesn't change the fact that it says there is a throne that God's sitting on and you don't get to part of the throne. There is always a higher authority. If we don't get to cross these aspects of God when we talk about Jesus, what happens? Do we associate, as I say, do we associate human aspects with Jesus? Um, like Jonah did. Which means that we kind of, he stops having been divine and ends up just being a good moral teacher. Maybe we look at the miracles I talked about earlier and what it means is he can do magic tricks, you know, to do with the, um, the, the, the world, the creation. But it's not actually pointing to something even bigger than that. Without this idea of God's absolute authority and sovereignty, the idea of a relationship with Jesus just becomes another idea that humans have invented to try and make our lives a little easier. It's that fundamental starting point that God is the beginning of all things, the author of all things, that sets everything in motion. And without it, it the whole thing falls to bits. So, in the absence of Hashkip this week, there are some questions. Have we fully understood the significance of Genesis 1? John 1, and the section of Colossians, actually, um, that we looked at in Colossians, of what that means in terms of who God is and what he has the authority to do, and what that means from our perspective. Do you try and do deals with God? Have anyone tried to bargain and do deals with God? I'll do this if you do that, because we treat him like a friend. Is the gospel good news? It wasn't for the rich young ruler. Initially, it wasn't for, for Jonah. It wasn't what he wants to hear. How can we communicate this concept for, for when we talk about Jesus, so those getting involved in Alpha? How can we make sure that we unpack this picture of God so when we talk about Jesus, they properly get it and it just doesn't miss like shit's missing in the night. They don't cause them quite click. And lastly, which is something I'd like to encourage with you know, the questions we go moving forward, how do we explain this to those um, who are younger than us, our kids, those of us with parents with children or those with connections with children, maybe this last question is for you. How do you try and explain these concepts in a way that connects with them when the world they have is going up in doesn't understand these things and it's quite hard to try and grasp these things? Now, I appreciate that's quite a lot to, to deal with on a Sunday morning. We're running over time a bit. But I want you just to have that as a starting point. I encourage you to go back to look out for the notes as they come through this week. And if you don't hear anything, get in touch with the office and we can ping some to you. But I want us to just to get hold of that... Um, this, this passage and the, the passage on that question and just slosh them around your head and try and work out what that means in terms of who good is, what the authority has and what that means in terms for the gospel and the narrative and what it might mean that we don't want it to mean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that for your word. We know that sometimes, frequently, what it says in your word, we don't want to hear. We don't want to read because it doesn't agree with us. It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't sit well with us. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and soften our hearts and reveal to us, like you did with those characters in the Bible that we've seen, where you 
open our minds and help us to see things from a bigger perspective. That you would show us and reveal to us and give those experiences like Jonah did and Job did. That the world is bigger than we might think. That the perspective and the questions from the perspective is much, much larger and bigger than we might anticipate. And there are things that are, are far too lofty for us to stand. And some of those difficult things are just a starting point for that relationship to work through. I just pray that's moving forward. We will, Holy Spirit, you will inspire us and slosh these things around our head as we go forward this week and beyond. That you would inspire us to put words in our mouth that we speak to those that you love, that you want us to engage with. In Jesus' name, amen.